Well, it's wonderful to be back here. Um, I was with you, goodness, a couple years ago and enjoyed it so much. Um, and so when, when I was asked to come back, I, I didn't really have to think about it very long. Um, just was so encouraged by so many of you and in all honesty, I, you know, I teach at a seminary and we're talking about all kinds of things at 10,000 feet, but what really warms my heart is seeing uh, so many in the church uh, grab on to those same ideas and seeing it slowly, sometimes over years and years, just change your life. Uh, To me, that is a reminder that, okay, this is, this is actually something that, that glorifies God and you begin to see his hands at work. And I think that this church here is an example of that. So thank you so much for having me. I am so looking forward to talking about the Trinity. What could be more important to being a Christian than to talk about the Trinity? In my first talk this evening, we are going to focus on the unity, or sometimes it's called the simplicity of the Trinity. And then later, uh, tomorrow, we're going to transition to say, well, now that we understand what, what it is that unites Father, Son, and Spirit, how do we distinguish between Father, Son, and Spirit? And how do we do that carefully without falling into a number of those historical and even heretical ditches on either side of the road. But in each of my talks, I want to do two things. First, I want to introduce you, perhaps for the first time, to some concepts that could be new, maybe even challenging, but I think will actually safeguard you from all kinds of errors. And secondly, I also want to show you, if you come along, if you stick around for this journey, I also want to show you what all of, all of this has to do with what it means to be a Christian and what it means to come into communion and fellowship with this great God we worship Sunday after Sunday. Well, you wouldn't know it from looking at me, but thanks to, well, no thanks to my, my dad's side of the family, but I'm actually uh, Mexican, and I'm very proud to say so. Uh, as often as possible, I'm actually originally from Los Angeles, and so as often as possible, I try to get back there once in a while and visit my aunts and uncles, my, my nephews and cousins on my mom's side. Her last name has changed, of course, but she will always be a Cervantes at heart. In fact, I enjoy so many in my family, familia as as they would say. But I must but I must say, if I if you were really to force me to pick one that I, I just love maybe more than the others, it has to be my my aunt, Auntie Licha as we call her. She has a special place in my heart. That's because she knows the way to my heart, which I think is probably the way to many, uh, many hearts, uh, if you're anything like me at least, and that is through the stomach. 
There's nothing like sitting down for Thanksgiving, bypassing the turkey to grab, before they're gone, one of those, one of our legendary spicy tamales. Just when I think, I don't know that I could physically eat another one. It's just not going to happen. She says, Mio, you are so skinny. You look like you're starving. Mio, eat another tamale. What, what am I supposed to do at that point? I'm helpless. Because they're so good, they're just irresistible. With familia, life always, and, and I really mean always, revolves around food, good food. But not just any food, food that's been made with love and, and, and really is consumed with loved ones. I hope you have that experience as well. My heritage, though, has opened my eyes in all kinds of surprising ways to the centrality of food in the Bible. I know that sounds a bit odd, but think about it from beginning to end, from the tree in the garden to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of course, food could be very controversial, even contentious in the first century, for example. Have you ever read Paul's letter to the Corinthians? When he says to them, as they are wrestling with debate in their midst, Paul must tell the Corinthians not to eat food, sacrifice the idols, if if it will cause, say, your less mature brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Paul has a lot to say about that. But for our purposes, something Paul says in the middle of this instruction is relevant to our doctrine of the Trinity, believe it or not. Just after Paul says, this is 1 Corinthians 8, just after he says an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, he then says this. This is verses 5 through 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Is Paul done? He's not. Listen to what he says next. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's no question that Paul has that ancient Shema in view. He's quoting or at least echoing the book of Deuteronomy. Who in the Old Testament, though, ever included another name, another person in this fundamental confession of the faith? To do so would have been blasphemy. But Paul does. In the same breath that he quotes from the Shema, he names Jesus Christ. There is one God, he says, the Father, 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice Paul names the Father and the Son as the one God referenced and worshipped throughout the Old Testament. But wait a minute. Where is the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul is no binatarian. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul will use this same language, the same lordship idea, except this time he applies it not only to the Son, but to the Spirit. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 3, for example. To understand this passage, you have to know a little something about Moses. In the Old Covenant, says Paul, Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Paul then laments that their minds were hardened. Verse 14. Here's the question. Did anything change by Paul's day? Well, in one sense, no. Unfortunately, says Paul, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. All seems lost, doesn't it? But then Paul says, hold on, there's hope. Verses 14 through 16. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Can you, can you see Paul here? Paul's just leaping off the stage in his excitement. But hold on a minute. Paul has more good news to share. And this time it has to do with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 through 18. Who is this Lord, Paul? Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Is that you? are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. The Spirit has unveiled our faces so that we are the recipients of all the new covenant blessings Paul is so eager to talk about. But notice the Spirit can only do so Because he is the Lord himself. As the Lord, the Spirit of God not only awakens us to new life, opening our blind eyes, but transforms us, even sanctifies us, so that we have the mind of Christ. Sometimes Scripture will speak of the Father. Sometimes it will refer to the Son. Sometimes to the Spirit. But whenever it refers to one person, it assumes that that person is 
consubstantial with all the other persons, co-eternal, co-equal in divinity, holding the one divine essence in common, the one God, the one Lord, who is none other than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To confess God as one is often taken to mean there is but one God. Now that is certainly true. We don't want to say anything less than that, but we don't often say much more, do we? There's actually far more, far more we can say about God's oneness. To confess God as one is also to confess that God is one. He is one by nature. He is one in nature. He is not a God who is made up of parts. But He is a God without parts. How different is this God than us, right? There's, there, there is in Him no composition. He doesn't have a composer like we do, does He? Nor can He be compounded by different parts. If He could then he would be divided in his very being. Why? Because parts, well, parts are divisible by nature. He would be changing. He would be a mutable being. Why? Because parts are prone to change. He would be a temporal being because parts require a composer. And perhaps scariest of all, he would be a dependent being depending on these parts as if they somehow precede him. Now, those attributes may define finite creatures like us, but they cannot characterize the unchanging, immutable, eternal, timeless, and self-sufficient God who is without bodily form. Parents, Maybe we should take a page from Alice in Wonderland. I see some kids in here and maybe some teenagers as well. I won't ask you to raise your hand and tell me whether you have read one of the most important philosophical books. Do you remember when Alice falls down that rabbit hole? It's one of my favorite parts. My kids love this part returns to Wonderland, the the Mad Hatter looks her over. That peculiar, distraught, dissatisfied frown. You remember what the Mad Hatter says? You're not the same as you were before. You were much more muchier. You've lost your muchness, Alice. Alice looks at him. What are you? What do you mean? Whenever we talk about creatures, the Mad Hatter is right. He's right, isn't he? But not with God. His essence never changes. He never, never, never becomes muchier than before. 
since he is not made up of parts like us, he never loses his muchness. He is maximally alive. Or as so many of our church fathers like to say, he is pure act. How then do we describe this God? A God who is so different from us. A God who is without parts. What's almost too simple to say. God is simple. Not as in elementary or basic or easy to understand. Some of you are saying, yes, I I can see that now. He's not simplistic. That's not what we mean. Rather, he is a God of absolute simplicity. That means that all that is in God is God. His essence and his attributes, these are not separate entities. His essence is his attributes and his attributes, his essence. God does not merely possess love. That, that, that's how we work, right? Depending on what day you talk to me, you may say, well, he was a little bit more loving yesterday than he is today, unfortunately. That's not God. God doesn't merely have to get love or possess love. God Remember what John says? What? He is love. God does not merely possess holiness, does he? He is holy. We could go on. His substance, his essence is characterized by an intrinsic oneness. I think this is at least in part why he alone deserves to be called God. Because no created being can be simple in this divine sense. He is simply God. Now, what in the world does any of this have to do with the Trinity? Before we can answer that question, we need to learn just a little bit of vocabulary. So I'm going to ask you to be a student with me for a second. Maybe take out your pen or maybe you have your phone and you type type or write some of these things down, I I think that they will help us tremendously. What is it that distinguishes the persons of the Trinity? And what is it that unites these persons of the Trinity? Well, let's answer that first one. One thing, one thing alone distinguishes these persons. Here it is. Their eternal relations of origin. Their eternal relations of origin. Now, relations doesn't refer to relationships like like you and I might have as very separate individuals. We have to be really careful at this point, don't we? We don't want to project our human experience onto God. Rather, that word relations merely refers to each person's everlasting providence their origin. So what are these eternal relations of origin? Well, it's right there in front of you. The very names that scripture gives to us. The Bible calls the father, father, because he eternally begets his son. Though he himself is begotten by no one, he is unbegotten. The Bible calls the son, son, Because he is, well, what else would son mean than begotten, generated by his father, 
Though, notice, it's not very different. It's very different than our experience, isn't it? Because he is eternally begotten. The Bible calls the spirit, spirit. Well, he is spirit, for he is eternally breathed out or spirated by the Father and the Son. These eternal relations of origin are basic, believe it or not, basic to our understanding of the gospel. Why is it so fitting that the Father sends the Son to redeem us? Because the Son is begotten from the Father from eternity, apart from us. Why is it so fitting that the Father and Son, do you remember that language in Acts? Give to us the Spirit at Pentecost, for example, because the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but from eternity, apart from us. The key point is this. The persons of the Trinity are identical in all things except these eternal relations of origin. So far, we've identified what distinguishes these persons as Father, Son, and Spirit. But how do we stress and really safeguard their unity? Remember that word we just learned? Their simplicity. Well, we can use another phrase to help us do that. Here it is. Modes of subsistence. What a mouthful, right? Modes of subsistence. That word subsistence refers to the way that that one undivided, simple, divine essence of God subsists, exists in a unique way in each person. And we just learned those. This Father, well, He is unbegotten. The Son, He is He is begotten by the Father in the Spirit. Well, this is the Spirit who is spirated from the Father and the Son. If God is not made up of parts, but is one, simple, then that means that the one divine essence wholly subsists. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Wholly subsists in three persons. And each person is Holy God, without exception, without qualification. Now, let me be very honest with you for a minute. All of what you just learned used to be basic and essential to Christianity for almost two, goodness, 1800 years until our century came along and started well, started to dispense with it. And in its place, we've substituted a trinity made in the image of our own society. In this social view of the trinity that's so popular today, the trinity's unity or simplicity as we've described it, it's abandoned for a society of individuals who merely cooperate with one another or get along. No longer are we interested in the Trinity's eternal relations of origin, but instead we have redefined the persons according to relationships, each person being their own individual, each with their own 
separate center of consciousness and will and their own role and so on. Do you see what we've done? We've forfeited the unity, that simplicity of our triune God. And by going this direction, we inch all the more closer to a heresy like tritheism. My point is this. Simplicity. It may be a foreign word, but it is so essential. It protects us from remaking the Trinity in the image of our own society. If God is simple, then he is not made up of three parts, nor is he divisible by three different individuals with their own center of consciousness, their own different wills. Instead, no, instead, our God is one. Indivisible, his one essence can't be divided up among three persons. Nor can it be dismantled into different separate agents of divinity. Instead, the one indivisible essence wholly subsists in three persons so that each and every person is a subsistence of the one undivided, simple divine essence. That means then that whether we're talking about the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, each is to be considered true God, holy divine, not one of them, not even in the slightest, is less than another. Inferiority cannot exist where each person is a subsistence of the same identical divine nature. No one person is subordinate to the next because no one person is less divine than the next. Do you see the simplicity of the divine essence? It's not the property of just one person or maybe two persons of the Trinity but all three. Moses confessed when he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But when, when we hear this confession, the Son and the Holy Spirit, as we learn from the Apostle Paul, they are included in that confession as much as the Father. Did our church fathers understand the importance of all of this? They did. Except in their day, simplicity, well, it was critical to protecting the church from the heresy that subordinated one person of the Trinity to another. At the beginning of the fourth century, when the Christian church was still quite young, a dispute erupted that threatened the survival of Christianity as we know it. Up to this point, the church taught much of, of, of what we've just learned. Those biblical names, Father, Son, Spirit, these aren't just random, but they're not meaningless inventions. 
They mean something. They tell us and reveal to us who this triune God is. The Son, for example, is Son because He is from the Father, but from all eternity. Begotten by the Father, they said, before all ages. The eternal Son of God. This is what Scripture means when it gets, when it gets right at the heart of that title, Son. But then came along a pastor. Hmm. His name was Arius. And he was deeply disturbed by this biblical teaching. He said, well, he said many things, but one of the things he said is, well, this, this violates the central tenet of monotheism, producing not one but two gods. You see, Arius was committed to the monarchy of God. God is not just one, but the one and only one, he said, who can be principle. There can be no other principle but him. Arius concluded that for, the, for God to be God, he must be unbegotten. And for Arius, the son then cannot be eternally begotten from the father's divine nature. He cannot be consubstantial from the same nature, from the same divine substance with the father in divinity. And if he is not co-eternal with the father as the son who is eternally begotten by the father, well, you know the rest. He cannot be co-equal either. As one who is not generated or begotten from the father's divine nature, neither can he be co-eternal, co-equal with the father. The unity of the son with the father Well, what kind of unity is this? It's not, said Arius, a unity of being, of nature, of divine essence. At best, the Son shares a unity of will or wills. The Son cooperating with the will of His Father, the unity they have merely functional. The Son then is not in a Different category from the rest of creation. Not at the end of the day. He is merely the best. The most supreme of the, of the creation. Generated by the Father. He is the pinnacle of the created order. But nonetheless still part of the created order. Still an effect. A mere product of the divine will. As is the rest of the cosmos. Now listen to this. Did this have practical implications? Absolutely. Theology always does, doesn't it? For Arius, the son, well, he may be a son by grace, but he is not a son by nature. The teachings of Arius and his supporters proved explosive as dynamite. The blast ruptured the unity of the church. In an effort to regain lost unity, the emperor Constantine called a church council, recruiting theologians from east and west to represent the church universal. Your future was on the line. 
And in A.D. 325, a year that went down in history, pastors assembled in Nicaea, modern-day Turkey. And after an in-depth evaluation, they decided, you know, this, this teaching of Arianism, this is contrary to Scripture, even though they are using Scripture to defend it. It's even heresy. And so they wrote a creed to help the church know what Scripture does teach about the Trinity, a creed to be confessed in churches everywhere. They placed emphasis on the eternal generation of the Son. He is begotten from the Father. But by begotten, they did not mean what those Arians meant, that the Son is a mere product of the Father's will and authority. No, they said, the Son is begotten, not made. You see the difference? For us creatures, to be begotten is to come into existence for the first time. (coughs) Arius was so literalistic in his thinking, in his reading of the Scriptures, that he could not understand the idea or concept or metaphor when applied to God one that defies any limitations that we might have in our human world. Yes, the Son is begotten. That's the very definition of a Son. That is what distinguishes the Son as Son. But remember, remember, this is the eternal, infinite, unchanging God we're talking about. The Son's begetting, this generation, it is Eternal as well, infinite and unchanging. He can have no beginning as creation does. The church fathers also countered this heresy when they said that the Son is begotten from the essence of the Father. What does that mean? Well, they used a word in Greek, usia, to refer to the essence of God. Remember, Arius thought the Son was begotten as a creature, a product of the Father's will. He said there was once a time when the Son was not. And therefore, He cannot be of the same essence as His Father. How did your church fathers respond? Well, they argued, this Son, He is begotten from the Father's very essence. From all eternity, the Father communicates the one, simple, undivided, divine essence to the Son. And this does not undermine the Son's co-equality with the Father. It actually safeguards the Son as co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Only if He is eternally begotten from the Father's essence is He wholly divine. There's a lot at stake here, isn't there? There was in the 4th century and there still is today. And there's also numerous, maybe innumerable applications for you as a Christian. We can't look at all of them, but as we close, I want you to consider just two. First, 
The Trinity's simplicity is the reason you can have communion with the whole Trinity. It's the reason you can have even assurance of your salvation. All of this is incredibly important for our salvation. We're going to talk about this tomorrow, but let me just spoil it just a little bit. If the persons of the Trinity are one in essence, one in will, one in power, simply Trinity, then it also follows that they work inseparably in creation and salvation. This is what our fathers called inseparable operations. Write that down, underline it, highlight it. It means the external works of the Trinity are undivided, indivisible in essence, indivisible in operation. Singular in nature and will, the persons perform a singular action. Inseparable operations was so indispensable that one of the church fathers named Gregory, Gregory of Nyssa, there were a lot of Gregories back then. Well, he said... We should infer the oneness of the Trinity's nature from the identity of their single operation. If the Trinity is indivisible in essence and inseparable in operation, what does that mean for you, Christian? It means that whenever you have communion and fellowship with any one person of the Trinity you also have communion with the whole Trinity. One of my favorite Puritans, John Owen, forgive his old-fashioned English, but listen to what he says. By what act soever we hold communion with any person, there is an influence from every person to the putting forth of that act. To enjoy fellowship, with one person, is to come under the influence of all three. Christian, do you you understand what this means? Listen to another Gregory, Gregory of Nazianzus. And notice, notice his very doxological stance here. No sooner do I conceive of the one then I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them that I am carried back to the one. Do you think like that? Do you worship like that? The implications for your salvation, for your assurance, for your comfort are endless. In John 10, Jesus comforted his disciples, telling them, don't worry The Father has given to him, Jesus, the sheep, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. What reassurance could Jesus possibly give to these anxious disciples? So different from us, right? I and the Father are one. Jesus was not, he wasn't merely saying, hey, good news, The father and I talked. We happen to be on the same page. He's not merely saying, we're in agreement. 
We figured out how to protect you from the evil one. No, he's saying so much more. He is one with the Father. We know this in part by how those religious leaders react. They got the message. They start picking up stones to kill Jesus. Why? Not because Jesus is good, because of his good works, but because he, a mere man, made himself out to be God. Friends, your assurance entirely depends on the simplicity of our triune God. Second and last. The, tri- the Trinity's simplicity is key to your everlasting happiness. If the Trinity is not simple, dare I say, you cannot be happy, at least not in the eternal sense that Jesus talks about. Now that might sound strange to you, but let's think through this for a minute. Friends, where is happiness found? Well, happiness, at least the type that lasts cannot be found in the transient. The transient is transient, right? It comes, it goes, it fades away, it does not last, it cannot endure. Well, all those cannots make it less than perfect. That doesn't mean that the transient is not good, but it does mean that it's not the greatest good. It falls short of perfection. It may be good, but whatever goodness it has is derivative, dependent on something better. The source of happiness must be that which is not only good, but eternal. An eternal good, which does not depend on something outside of itself for its goodness, but is the source of goodness itself. Of course, you know what I'm going to say. This can be none other than God. And for that reason, well, our language sometimes can fall terribly short and be very insufficient when we say merely God acts in a good way or God possesses goodness. God may be good for the for one moment, but he's not good the next, nor is there any guarantee that when God does have goodness in reach, he's going to keep it. His goodness might fluctuate as if he becomes, well, as my kids would say, does he become more good, dad? In the future than he was yesterday? His muchness comes and goes then. A lot like Alice. A lot like you. A lot like me. These disastrous consequences can all be avoided if we stop assuming God is like us. God is God because he is good. We are describing simplicity. He is the source of all goodness in the world because he is good by nature. Isn't this what the Psalms say? Isn't this what David keeps saying over and over and over? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. It may seem like we've left the subject of happiness altogether for the finer points of philosophy, but we have never been closer to understanding happiness than we, than now. When we brush up against the Trinity's unity, its simplicity, 
Happiness is located in goodness itself. But as we have seen, not just any understanding of goodness will do, right? The goodness we must speak about, well, it has to be ultimate, absolute, pure. It must be eternal, infinite, without measure. And just as important, this goodness must be simple, undivided, one, indivisible. This goodness and this goodness alone is perfection. This goodness and this goodness alone is divine. This goodness and this goodness alone is the Holy Trinity. For our triune God is good in a way that no creature can be. His divinity is happiness. He doesn't have to work as we do to somehow become happy, to to somehow become fulfilled. By nature of His goodness, He is happy. He is the plentitude of bliss and blessedness. And as the fullness of life in and of Himself, His perfections in infinite measure, well, He is eternal life. If happiness is divinity and divinity is happiness, at least the type that we're talking about, then the greatest happiness occurs right now when we know God is Trinity and and it still awaits us. One day when we see Him and know Him like never before. I don't think I can say it better than Thomas Aquinas, an old friend. God is goodness itself. Therefore, in the vision of God, who is goodness itself, who is pleasure. As Isaiah 66 says, you will see and your heart will rejoice. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Trinity leads to your everlasting bliss because the Trinity is your everlasting bliss. Let's pray. Lord, I will be the first to confess that my thoughts so often fall short of who you really are. Lord, bring us to our knees this weekend so that we, with a posture of humility, out of faith, Seek understanding. May we not get frustrated with the deep things of God, but may we remember this is God we are talking about. Of course, of course, this is going to be hard for our minds to even comprehend. Lord, we approach you as sons and daughters by grace but only because we can come to you, Christ Jesus, as the Son begotten from the Father, a Son by nature. One with the Father, equal in essence. Help us this weekend to then understand this great, magnificent doctrine of the Trinity in all of its beauty, 
and incomprehensibility. In Christ's name, amen.